Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3. One of the most critical parts in preparing a sermon is to determine what exactly constitutes a text. Especially when you're going through a book of the Bible, how big of a piece do you take? You've heard it said you can prove anything from the Bible. Well, that's true. All you have to do is just take a little piece and pull it out of its context, and then you make it say whatever you want it to say. So as we study, it's, as I prepare, it's really important to determine what is the natural division where we take a piece as it's intended to be a piece of the whole that represents the meaning of the whole. And that's the problem that we face in Exodus 3 and 4. For everyone that I read agrees that the smallest division of the text here is the section from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 17, which is the calling of Moses. That's 39 verses, and I'm not known for my speed in going through these things. Well, I divided it up anyway, and we talked last week about the first part, the incident of God, uh, 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 Moses encountering God in the burning bush. But this morning, we kind of have to stand back and look at the whole and try to make it through the rest of this section so that we can see what's going on here. So that's what we're going to do. And we'll be talking really fast and moving very fast and not getting very deep into any of it, but I want us to see the whole. And unless we get totally lost, I want to do something a little different, and we're going to read it as we go, kind of in sections, as we do on Sunday night very often, beginning with a little review. Well, let's back up. We're going to pick up in verse 7. We'll go from chapter 3, verse 7, to 4.17 altogether. But right now, let me read verse th- chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, I have heard them crying out <coughs> because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Yesterday I read an an Associated Press news story reporting the effects of the remnants of Hurricane Ivan up in North Carolina. And in one community thereafter, a wall of water just came and shattered 30 homes. One resident who had lost part of his families in that commented, there was no warning. It was just like, boom, life changed. I think that's how Moses felt this day. When he had led his flock to graze on the far side of the wilderness, his experience as a kid growing up in Egypt, which was almost 80 years earlier, was far from his mind. His privileged status in Pharaoh's household was ancient history. His, the problems his people knew there 
were, uh, continued, but his youthful zeal to do something about it had long since been disillusioned. Now his life was settled into a new reality. He had a wife and some children, and he had a new job, and he was busy doing it. And things may not have been like he envisioned them, but life was peaceful and predictable. And then without warning, boom, life changed. For when God reveals himself and his salvation, we can never be the same. That's what we're going to see unpacked in this text today. And may I suggest two truths that we need to learn here. The first is simply this, that God's grace demands our response. God's grace demands our response. Just to review for a moment what we talked about last week. God appeared to Moses in the form of a burning bush, which was a symbol of of both God's holiness and his presence, and Moses was terrified. From that bush, God outlined his great saving plan. He promised to rescue his people out of their slavery in Egypt and bring them to a new home in the land that he would give them. We can only imagine Moses' joy. After all these years, God had remembered his promises made to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. After all this suffering, God is now going to show compassion. And after all of Moses' own failed attempts to try to help his people, God is going to come and deliver his people himself. Oh, what a great announcement of God's grace. And then in verse 10, God drops the bomb on Moses. I'm sending you to rescue them. Does that give you a sudden sick feeling in the pit of your stomach? It does me. Oh, wow, God's going to deliver these people in slavery. I'm sending you to go get them. No! (laughs) No! You see, we live in a spectator society, you and me. We watch others strive and sweat on the playing field. We watch others fight and die for our freedom, and we sit back and critique them and criticize, perhaps, or applaud. We are great armchair armchair quarterbacks. But God doesn't play that game. When God reveals himself, especially when he reveals his plan to save, he demands our response. Not our applause, not our critique, but our committed involvement, our life. That's how it worked with Moses. That's how it still works today. God hasn't changed. Jesus came and brought salvation. God's holiness and God's mercy that we talked about last week kissed one another as Jesus hung on the cross so that in him there is no condemnation but only eternal life. But now God says to us, it's not enough to say, that's nice. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's great, but that's not enough. God says, I want you to go and tell people. I want you to take the message of my salvation with you and go to the whole ends of the earth. I'm sending you. God's grace demands a response. Oh, none of us will be like Moses. You're not Moses, I'm not Moses. But I tell you this morning plainly that God's not calling spectators 
to fill pews of churches. God is calling disciples to learn of him and to serve him in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways. It's not just missionaries and ministers who are so-called. Every person whom Christ rescues, he calls to be a rescuer. God's grace demands our response. Well, Moses, like us, objected. Yeah, but, you know that line? Which brings us to our second point, and here we'll spend the remainder of our time. Our second point is this. Not just God's grace demands a response, but God won't take no for an answer. God won't take no for an answer. In this account that we have, beginning with, cha- with uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 11, on down through 417, Moses raises no less than five objections to God. Let's read the first one. First one's in verse 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses' first objection is simply, Who am I, Lord? In other words, Moses said, I'm not worthy to do this. I'm nobody. And he's right. He's nobody. He's not worthy. In fact, this objection probably reflects a deep-seated self-doubt in Moses. For you remember, he had tried miserably to rescue these people and uh, uh, had failed miserably at it. And he has no illusions of grandeur that he is a great deliverer. Remember, he left Egypt fleeing for his life after his attempts. But God won't take no for an answer. You see, humility, the recognition that you are not God and cannot do what God does, is a prerequisite for service in God's kingdom. Isaiah saw God in his holiness and said, Woe is me, I'm undone. God called Jeremiah and Jeremiah responded, Lord, I'm just a child. God called the Virgin Mary and she spoke of God being mindful of the humble estate of his servant. You see, Moses' humility, when he says, who am I, Lord? His humility was not a reason not to serve the Lord. It's what qualified him for his service. He knew he was nobody. It took him 80 years to learn that, but he knew he was nobody. And so God says, in effect, to Moses, yeah, you're nobody, but it's not about you, it's about me. I'm going with you, Moses. And then God speaks of giving him a sign. Now, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of different opinions about what the sign is. I'll just tell you what I think after reading on this a bit. I think God is saying, look at this burning bush that you're talking to, Moses. Don't you ever forget this. Let this be a sign to you. Hold on to this. I'm telling you that I who have appeared to you in this bush When you go down and rescue my people, you're going to bring them back and I'm going to meet you right here. Right here. I guarantee it. In fact, that's what happened. Except when the people came, he met them there in the mountain of flame on Mount Sinai. Not just in a burning bush. Folks, God's calling always comes in the midst of our sense of unworthiness. Indeed, if you think you deserve God's calling, you don't. You're not qualified. 
I've never seen an elder or a minister worth his salt who thought he was worthy to be an elder or a minister. But Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I'm appointing you to go bear fruit. And he said, surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Same thing he said to Moses, I'll go with you. Well, no matter how unworthy you are, God won't take no for an answer. Oh, but Moses is not convinced, so he goes on. Another objection. Next section, chapter 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go. <laughs> suppose I go. That's it. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Take, let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless... A mighty hand compels him, so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, and any woman living in her house, for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Here Moses raises another issue. What if they say, who sent you? What if they say, who sent you? In other words, Moses is saying, I don't have any authority to do this. That's the issue. By what authority? Who said so? Here Moses probably projects his own doubt onto the people of Israel, but it's a legitimate question. Peter Inns explains what's happening. To a certain extent, he says, this makes perfect sense. All the Israelites know of Moses, if they know anything at all, is that he was brought up as an Egyptian, committed murder, and is a wanted man. What credentials does he carry? This is an important issue. By what authority does someone act? Is he self-appointed, or does he really have some authority behind him? For authorities... By definition, authority transcends the immediate situation in, the, in this individual person. Authority is something based on long-held traditions and values which we expect to continue for a long time in the future. Authority is grounded in something greater than us. It's grounded in the divine, or it's grounded in some ancient source of wisdom or in some uh, a common greater good. So it's not a bad question for Moses to ask, who do I say sent me? By what authority am I supposed to go? 
And in response, God gives a wonderful revelation of himself. God says to Moses, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. This is one of the most written about passages in the whole Bible. There's a lot of mystery to this. But what is clear is that here God is claiming to be the absolute, transcendent, unchanging, ultimate authority. The I am. The one who always has been. The one who always will be. The one who is, who was, who is to come. The ever-present one. Beyond whom there's no appeal. This name, I am, that God calls himself, is the basis for the name Yahweh, or Jehovah, as we say it in English. Scholars seem to agree that Yahweh is the is a third-person singular form of the verb to be. I know you don't want to hear all that grammar stuff, but in other words, God says, I am. When Moses says it, he says, he is. And he is is the root word of Yahweh, God's name. Now that name became so holy among the Jews that they would never say it. In fact, we don't know for sure that it's pronounced Yahweh because they quit saying it centuries and centuries ago. In fact, they did an interesting thing. They took the consonants of the word Yahweh and they took all the vowels out and they took the vowels of the word Adonai, which is the word for Lord, and put them in Yahweh and made up this kind of non-word, which when we translate it in English is Jehovah, but it's not really a word. They did that so that they would remember when they saw this non-word, don't say God's name, it's too holy. They would say Adonai, or Lord, instead. You find that in your Bibles, you can identify it. Lord, the word master, is capital L-O-R-D. But Yahweh is capital L, little capital O, little capital R, little capital D. Little caps. That's God's name. He is. The great I am. This wasn't just about words, though. Get off a little aside there. This wonderful thing about God's name. But God is establishing here who he is. He says to Moses, I'm the God of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have authority over Israel. Even though those people are slaves under the absolute authority of Pharaoh, you go and tell them, I am sent you, and they will listen. They recognize that authority. And I'm the authority over Pharaoh. Now, he's not going to listen to you, but though he's the most powerful man in the world, I have authority over him, and I will bring about my will, whether he likes it or not. God says, in effect, Moses, authority is not an issue, buddy. I am authority. You go do what I said. That's still the case. In the New Testament, the apostles faced the same question. By what authority are you out preaching about Jesus? You're not allowed to preach about Jesus. By what authority do you do these things? You can't do this. This is illegal. And they said, well, should we obey God or should we obey men? We'll obey God, thanks. And they kept preaching. For Jesus had told them, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go make disciples. And by what authority is still an issue for us today. In our culture, authority is, the, the ultimate authority seems to be the polls. 
if 80% if of people agree, it must be right, right? No. We come with the message from the great I Am. The one who is and who was and who is to come. His name is exalted over every authority on the face of the earth so that whether anybody likes it or not, whether anybody commands silence or not, God tells us to proclaim clearly his salvation, knowing that he stands before it. The sovereign God who sent us to proclaim it does not take no for an answer. But of course, some won't believe. And that bothered Moses, and that's his next objection. Let's keep reading. Chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, well, what if they do not believe me or listen to me? And say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. And he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, says the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored, like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you, or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. Water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Here Moses raises a very practical problem. He says, well, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe you spoke to me, and I have no power to make them believe. No matter how much authority I speak with, people believe what they want to believe. Normally belief is driven by tradition or by social convention. I can't make people believe. Moses didn't want to go put his life on the line and uproot everything and go down there and risk everything only to find out that people didn't believe and that he was powerless to change their mind. Oh, but God's able to turn hearts. He's able to make people believe. And uh, so he talks to Moses about this. Now, it's interesting how God responds to Moses. He does not roll the responsibility back on Moses and say to Moses, well, then you better learn to be more persuasive, buddy. You need to go take a public speaking course and be more persuasive. He knows they're not going to believe either, some of them. Nor does he say, well, you know, the truth is, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Oh, no, that's not right. Nor does he call people to just take a leap in the dark. It doesn't matter whether there's any truth, just have faith. Instead, God gives Moses some authenticating signs. He gives him some proofs. The staff in his hand, when he throws it on the ground, becomes a snake. When he picks it up, becomes a staff again. His hand becomes leprous when he puts it in his coat when it's, and, and becomes clean when he, uh, when he does it again. And water from the Nile poured out on the ground becomes blood. God equips Moses to prove God's power and authority to Israel and to Pharaoh that they might believe and obey the Lord. Now these are not just random magic tricks. In fact, they're not magic tricks at all. In a book that I have uh, by a man named Goran Larson, 
uh, he explains the significance of these signs. Let me read you a bit from what he says. He says, both Pharaoh and the Nile were regarded as divine. The cobra represented in particular the national god of Lower Egypt and was the foremost symbol of Pharaoh, reflecting his claim to divine royalty, sovereignty, and power. Therefore, the cobra constantly appears on his crown or helmet as depicted in reliefs, paintings, and statues. His scepter is often a stylized cobra. So we're safe in concluding that the transformation of the rod to a snake is a sign aimed precisely at the very symbol of Pharaoh's alleged power. It demonstrates so clearly who the true king and God is. The sign of the Nile turning to blood where the rod is again used also emphasizes God's power over humans and earth. You see what God does? He gives Moses signs that address their very beliefs in Egypt. In effect, God says to Moses, don't you worry about whether people will believe or not. I am able to turn the hearts of people and make them believe. So Moses' concern need not be a hindrance to his obedience. And once again, God won't take no for an answer. Just a little aside before we move on, what about this thing of authenticating signs? We find him in the New Testament, you know. Jesus came and preached and he did authenticating signs, miracles. Jesus rose from the dead and we, 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 we read in Acts 1 that God gave many convincing proofs that he was risen from, from the dead, eyewitnesses and such. The apostles went about establishing the church and God authenticated what they did with miraculous signs that were the same things that Jesus had done. In fact, Hebrews 2 states the simple fact of this verification. It says, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. Now, we don't see signs and wonders today, largely. But God still authenticates his truth. I don't mean to suggest you can scientifically prove everything in the Bible. You can't. What I mean to say is that God provides verification for us even today. We have prophecies and then we have the record of them being fulfilled in history. We have eyewitness accounts that have been preserved for us. Eyewitness accounts were written at the time that the eyewitnesses were still alive. They could be refuted. We have verifiable names and dates. The Bible's not like most holy books that's just kind of some message from heaven, supposedly. We read things like in the year when Caesar Augustus ordered a, a, a taxation and uh, Serenius was governor of Syria and all, you know, these times and places and dates and events, all of which are verifiable. So faith is to see that God verifies his truth and then to believe him for the things that are beyond our ability to verify. But that's how God deals with it. It's not leap in the dark. God verifies his truth. That's what happened with Moses here. That's what happens throughout the scripture. The fact that some don't believe is no reason to resist God's calling. That fact still does not mean that God will take no for an answer. 
Well, you'd think that Moses would have run out of objections by now, but he doesn't. He has two more. We're going to group the last two together. Chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight and makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please send somebody else to do it. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. Well, finally, in this last section, Moses is down to just about bare refusal. He says, God, I'm not a speaker. I just can't do this. Just get somebody else. Now, it's actually remarkable that this is Moses' final objection because for most of us, this is our first objection, isn't it? I can't speak. Get somebody else. You know, the truth is, Moses was not completely honest with the Lord here about his eloquence. In the New Testament, we read in Acts 7, I quote, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Moses may have had no confidence in himself, but make no mistake, he had had good training. He grew up as a prince in Pharaoh's household. He had the benefit of royal education and was on the fast track to success. But God ignores all that when God answers his objection. God's concern is not what training he had in Egypt, though God certainly used everything he had uh, provided for Moses. But God's concern was that Moses understand that the one calling him to speak is the one that made his mouth. Moses, this is a no-brainer. If I made your mouth, do you think I can help you know how to use it? Don't tell me you can't speak. I will enable you. God won't take no for an answer. But the truth is, Moses finally just gets down to the bottom line, I don't want to do it. Get somebody else. And God's angry with him. Because God has no intention of getting someone else. He does not take no for an answer. But in his anger, he says, okay, how about Aaron, your brother? Here comes Aaron. We'll get Aaron, and you will be the uh, thinker, and he'll be the speaker. Okay, this is how it's going to work. And I'll work with you, and I'll train you. Now, lest we think that this is an afterthought, isn't it interesting that Aaron was already on his way. And here he comes arriving right at the right moment. You see, God was more concerned about Moses' weaknesses than Moses was. God knew Moses. It's just that God could not stand this rebellion that says, I'm not going to do what you tell me because it's too hard and they won't believe and what authority and all these other things he threw up. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. I don't take no for an answer. God's answer to us is a lot like his answer to Moses. 
We say, I can't do it. And he says, you'll receive power from my Holy Spirit to be witnesses. And he says, but, and we say, well, I, I, I don't know how. I'll get somebody else. And he said, no, I'll give you help. I'm not sending you by yourself. I'm making you part of a body. You're one member of the body. You draw strength and help from other members of the body. This is how it works. I'm not sending you alone. But I am sending you. And I am calling you. And I won't take no for an answer. Now, I don't know what God might call you to do this morning. I don't know where God might want to send you. That's his business, and he is perfectly capable of making it clear to you. Trust me. I've been through this a few times. But this morning, I would simply forewarn you of the kind of natural objections that we raise, and and just so that you know that God has heard them all before. And they don't hold any water with him. He does not take no for an answer. He sends us to do what he sends us to do, and he seeks from us a willing obedience to trust him to do it. And the text ends with a really kind of ironic statement. And Moses, uh, God says to Moses, uh, don't forget your staff as you go. <laughs> That's great. During the course of life, we all will experience some life-changing experiences. Some of them are quiet moments of reflection or quiet conversation with someone where some truth dawns on us. Some of them may be spectacular or tragic events, like the man who said, boom, life changes. But there are some moments, however they come to us, after which we'll never be the same. I tell you this morning that encountering a God who is both holy and merciful is one of those events. Now, you only encounter this God as you come to know Jesus. Because if you don't know Jesus, you have to sacrifice either God's holiness in order for him to be loving or his love in order for him to be holy. Only in Jesus do those things come together as we talked about last week. But having heard that the holy God has come in Jesus and paid the debt of our sin to rescue sinners out of his love, you can never be the same, folks. You cannot go on unchanged. God's grace demands a response. It demands faith. It demands gratitude. It demands obedience. And God absolutely will not take no for an answer. He's heard all the objections before. Now he wants humble, submissive faith and obedience. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Oh, Father, we think Moses is a great leader in the Old Testament. And here we see him sounding just like us, full of fear, full of dread, wondering what the future is going to hold, wanting more than anything else that you would just get somebody else. And here we see that you don't change. So, Father, help us to learn from Moses' experience and to humble ourselves before you and to recognize that your plans are good and though as scary as they may be, that you go with us, that you are the authority that sends us, you give us all that we need for 
call people to believe, that you never leave us or forsake us, that you call us in, in, in community with others so that we're not on our own by ourselves here. Oh God, give us hearts that are faithful. Forbid, Lord, that we should dig in our heels and say no to you. Give us grace to pick up our staff, so to speak, and get on our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.